I'd be curious, does anybody still at an adult age actually still make Christmas lifts and like send them out to family and friends? Does anybody still do that? Okay, good. We've got like five people to do that. I am religious about it, and, I'm, and I will have my list out promptly by August of every year. This is what I want. This is what I need. And I thought I would just tell you, because I'm 12 years old, I thought I would tell you what my top three things are. There is a 1980s vintage ET mug on Etsy that, if you, this will change the game of mugs forever. I've begged my wife for it. It's $30. It's incredible. ET's just sitting up there looking at you. Anyway, I don't want to get into it. And then there's an, I want the entire vintage collection. If everybody knows of Calvin and Hobbes, does anybody have that? Yes. And lastly, I've asked for a 150-year-old bonsai tree. They're about $25,000. So here's hoping. But in a season where wanting things is discussed, highly encouraged, and listed out, I could not escape the idea, if I were to list out this Christmas, or if you were to, what kind of God do I want? What kind of God would I want? And this is a question for both Christians and unchristian here tonight. See, if we were to make a Christmas list asking for the type of God we want, well, obviously, he, she, it will more than likely be a projection of our desires and passions. It's interesting, Marx and Freud uh, pointed this out in their time. They will tell everybody that gods of their time or idols are made because somebody at some point, at some time, wanted to worship a certain god for a certain reason in a certain way. But that makes sense, right? If we were able to make our God our way, we'd carve and like whittle in some like total affirmation here. We'd pop in some postmodernism here for this God. We'd make sure that our God boosts our self-esteem and our God would fix the world hunger problem, right? Our God would have killer PR. Because if we are honest, if anybody in this room had a chance to make their own God, To sculpt our own God, I highly doubt we'd shape the God of the Bible. His PR is, well, rough. I mean, that's what the fall of humanity is in Genesis chapter 3, in essence. Wishing for a God other than the one we have, namely, in in the Bible. So, if that's a deep truth locked in our hearts from birth, that makes the biblical reality of Christmas, all of that, that makes the biblical reality of Christmas so Stout. Christmas is a celebration that the God whom we didn't want amazingly wanted us. But not just us, but the worst of us. Wanted us in our most foul, rank, vile, opposing condition. Friends, this is, this is, this is the truth of Christmas. And I say all of this as a caution. Because what we're about to be, read tonight will be offensive. What we're about to go over tonight will offend you. See, most Western Christians have been so desensitized, um, even I can be so desensitized as a pastor, by holiday nostalgia or eggnog or whatever it is, that we have forgotten the shocking, seemingly shameful truth of our verses that we just read, that Ryan just so read, be- read be- so beautifully. Now, don't get me wrong. I just want to make sure this is said. I'm not knocking Christmas spirit, just so everybody's. Nah, bring it. I'm the guy who camps out in front of Hallmark in the mall every year. I'm the guy who goes at May and asks for their ornament dream book. Does anybody else ask for the ornament dream book in May? Per Bosco, of course. (laughs) 
Me and Probosco camping there together. But as Christians, we are not to look at Christmas through like rose-colored glasses or everything's just a giant Jimmy Stewart movie, right? You see, Christians can see Christmas isn't a light in a super sunny, bright, you know, world. Christmas to Christians, we understand it's light in utter darkness. And it's this candle which shines upon everything else. Or as it's been said, Christmas is the reality, which is the revelation for the rest of reality. See, Christians are to know before Christmas is good news, guess what? It's bad news. Before it warms us, it is to wreck us. So we will not be reading about the God we wish we could have or the God we want, but tonight we'll be looking at the God who is most needed. And this is the God of the Bible, the God that humanity needs the most at the very first Christmas at his arrival. You would assume it would be wide media coverage or a parade or at least a shout out on Instagram of some kind. See, I don't know if you know this, maybe some of you royal fans know this or not, but like when William and Kate, when they had little Prince George, they sent out like real pieces of golden paper to all the leaders of the United Nations and said, Prince George has arrived. Like that was a real thing, but not God, not the God who was most needed. This God was announced to the most detestable, unreliable, uneducated, outcasted, forgotten by society. Who might that be? Look at verse eight again in Luke chapter two. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. There were shepherds out in the field. The text does not read that in the same region, there was princes and Pharisees and Beyonce's and presidents, whatever it was. That's what it doesn't read. This would be as if William and Kate sent golden letters to death row inmates to the impoverished, to the disliked. The only other group, just so you guys know, like that shepherds, like the only other group lower than shepherds and culturals like totem pole were lepers. It went shepherds, lepers, and then dead. Even if you're familiar with biblical history in the Old Testament, you might remember David before he was a king, he was what? A shepherd. Why? Because he was the least among his brothers. So shepherds then in both the Old and the New Testament were this ragtag, dishonest, too cool for temple school, that rhymed. Yes, too cool for temple school, rabbinical training, mostly because they did not desire to or even decide or want to do any sort of this temple cleansing. They're like, nah. So I'm assuming, I'm actually assuming that if anybody, does anybody have any nativity set out yet? Does anybody do nativity sets anymore? Okay, three people. But if you, you guys have seen nativity sets, everybody has seen the shepherd and he's like an Orlando Bloom type shepherd, right? Milky white skin, porcelain. Like, oh, I love Orlando Bloom shepherds. Don't think of that this time. Think more the hound from Game of Thrones. That's what these shepherds are. So take a little hound action figure and put that next to baby Jesus. You'll get an idea of what's going on. And for this account tonight, What's most fascinating is that according to Jewish legality, shepherds were not even trustworthy enough to be used as eyewitnesses. So, get this, not even trusting, yet here they are as what? The very first witnesses. 
They were, they're, 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 their statement wouldn't even hold up in court, but yet here they are the first witnesses before royalty, before religious, the God of humanity like most needs went to the roughnecks. See, this is only more evidence that Christmas, that the Christmas doctrine, that the Christmas story is history and fact over mere storytelling. See, some of you might remember um, Luke from our two years in the book of Acts, Luke the author. See, something you might also remember is that Luke isn't a novelist. Luke is a historian. He's not an author of fiction. He is a doctor. He is a historian. So we aren't reading imagination. We are reading Revelation, if if that makes sense. So even look at the beginning of chapter 2. It starts off with time and place, spoken like a true historian. So again, what we are reading is the work of history, accurate history, condensed history, yes, but accurate history is Luke's aim as a doctor, as an investigator, and as a historian. Because surely, if somebody did have the idea of making their own gods, like we've been talking about, you would not want to put this in the book. If you're going to write your own story, to write your own gospel, you don't want to start off with shepherds. See, again, no literary coach in the right mind would do this. Why? Because then, knowing Hebrew history, shepherds would have discredited your evidence. But something we are told again and again, which all of us know here, is that truth is, is stranger than fiction. Right? So, I hope we're all at least asking right now, in this moment, why shepherds? Why shepherds? Why were they the first witnesses? Well, Let's ask the only logical person you can ask at Christmas time, Charlie Brown. See, when Charlie Brown, if you remember, when he was, he was like a frustrated kids director of some play and he's all discouraged and classic Charlie Brown. Remember all that? And what did he do? He cried out, can somebody, can anybody tell me the real meaning of Christmas? And Linus speaks up and from memory recites our very text. You remember? He says, and then you know, he wraps it up and says, glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. And then Linus looks at Charlie Brown right in his little black pitted eyes or whatever. And he says, that, Charlie Brown, is the meaning of Christmas. That is the meaning of Christmas. So why announce first to shepherds? Because that is the meaning of Christmas. That God, which humanity needs the most, does not discriminate based on age, class, gender, sin level, intelligence, education, profession, social status, or occupation. So what we're reading tonight truly, truly, truly has little to do with shepherds and has far more to do with the nature of God. Shepherds being the first witnesses, this is God revealing something about himself. Born this day in the city of David, a savior. This is God giving the less fortunate fortune, giving those who don't have much something or rather someone to worship. So worship is something that I feel that the Lord was leading us as your pastors to end this year on. As Lorenzo and I were were praying about what, what, what is the message that we wanted to communicate through the Christmas telling this year, it felt like worship was what God was leading us. Because again, 
If you've been with us for a while, you know that the last 12 months have been less than desirable for our small little community. I've heard it said recently that 2017 is a scooter to the ankle. So that is the most accurate thing in the entire world. But if we could be honest, to collective church, it was multiple scooters to the ankle. But despite this year's many stings and bruises, we as a small church community want to sing, blessed be the name of the Lord who gives and who takes away. See, we've lost many things this year and we've lost people this year. But we also have, we have gained so many incredible people who are doing incredible things, who've locked arms and said, I want to join this mission As well, another reason to celebrate, to worship, because after three years of prayer, God has has graciously given this church a Sunday morning venue by the God's grace. It's a very exciting thing. We were able to tell the volunteers last night, and we may have done a 20-minute fib that we weren't getting it. I think somebody threw an ornament at me. I think Isabel threw an ornament at me. And then we did the reveal. But friends... This has been a hard year, but we are ending it on a positive, unbelievable, celebratory note that God answers prayers, that God answers prayers. So January 7th, I believe, which is the first Sunday in January, will be our first Sunday at 10 a.m. at Playa Studios in Culver City. If you come here at 4.30, there'll probably be another church here. You're welcome to join them or whatever you want to do, but we will not be here. We're writing up the paperwork now, but God has given us so much, even during the pain, to worship over this past year. So we are very, very excited. We only have three more, including this one, weeks here. Three more weeks here. If you haven't been to Playa Studios yet, it's dope. You're missing out. So we wanted to come to the Christmas story with themes of worship and glory and praise to end this year on. So from these verses, from these next, again, like few weeks that we'll be here, there'll be various, yes, incarnational Christmas, you know, verses from the Bible, but each with their own different element of worship. Tonight's going to be about worship and reason, but we're excited that Christmas is here, which is going to invite us all in with the broken shepherds to sing. Amen? Amen? So there's this incredible story that I heard recently, and it's about a choir. It's about a choir where their choir was practicing for for years, years, decades maybe. They kept practicing, practicing, and practicing, working diligently to nail each and every one of the soprano, tenor, bass parts. They each knew all of it, and they each knew that this song that they were singing was probably the best song the world has ever heard. Like, this is it. They're like Beatles status song type stuff. And what was so beautiful is they only got one chance to sing it. There's one chance. There was one concert. There was one solo show. So they knew they had to nail it. So finally, when the practice was done, they did their last run through. In the back, a single person had a question. They said, conductor, if, if I may, can I ask a question? And this choir member said, how come we only get to sing this song once? This is a fantastic piece of music. Wouldn't it be better if we could give several performances in different places to different audiences? No, the conductor cried. No, this music is for a very special occasion. It's only to be sung once by you. Once that time is done, 
The people who heard it will have to learn to sing it for themselves. The conductor is God, the choir is the angels, and the audience were the shepherds. The people who heard it will have to learn to sing it for themselves. See, out of all the ways, out of all the ways they could have announced the birth of Jesus Christ, shirt cannons, riding rainbows in the sky, whatever could have possibly been, the angels decided to sing. This strike anybody as odd out of all the ways, set fireworks off and fire can't whatever. The angels decide to sing. And not only just sing, but to a very, very, very small and by man's standards, pathetic audience, which is beautiful because God does not care ever about numbers. Now, if you've ever been in a band and you've played to a small, small audience, who boy, I'll never forget the first band I was in, the first metal band in high school, Embalmment of the Living, our first show, our first show, three people and two of them were my parents. I tell you what, we played hard and we played good. But I tell you what, it's a small audience at a show, it's rough, but not for these angels. God orchestrated this in such a way these angels to give these shepherds, the angels want to give these shepherds a reason. They want to give a reason, a reason to worship. See, the word worship means worth-ship. Worth-ship. That's to designate true value to something and thus recognize and respect it for its tremendous worth that it has intrinsically. Bishop N.T. Wright explains more. He says... Worship is not an optional extra for the Christian, a self-indulgent religious activity. It is the basic Christian stance and indeed the truly human stance. Worship derives from worship. It means giving God all he's worth. See, shepherds would be very seldom ever, ever found praising or worshiping God. As a result, they were looked down upon as anything but worshipers. Oh yeah, they're sheepsmen, but they're not worshipers. The notoriously religious, irreligious, excuse me, shepherds were told by the pastors and the church elders of their day that they were like prostitutes. No, no, no. Shepherds, you are prostitutes. You are habitual sinners. And that God is not interested in you. See, with that understanding, of course, it makes sense that these shepherds really have no reason to worship because they are told by the worshipers of their day that God will not accept you. God doesn't believe you have worth. God does not like you. And God will not want you, shepherds. There might be both Christian and unchristian here tonight in this room who believe that same evil Lie. If that is you, if that is you, and you believe that God does not want you, or that God does not like you, or that you are not lovable to God, the Christmas message is first and foremost for you, just as it was for the shepherds. For the unchristian here, for the faithless, for the, for the unbeliever, for the irreligious who may be here tonight, if you feel deep within a, your, that your, the, your searching or your being or your doing or your longing is for nothing and that you are out of sorts. This is what the Bible says about you. 
That is because of a dispeace, a dispeace between you and the God of the Bible. Look at verse 13. And suddenly there was an angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, what? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. This peace that the angels are going on about, this is in reference to a spiritual peace between God and humanity. Spiritual peace between us and the Lord. The Bible says that man and woman are at odds with God. Why? Because like we've been talking about all night is because what they actually wanted, what humanity actually wants, what Adam and Eve actually wanted in choosing their own God, what they actually wanted was to be God and have a puppet. This obviously creates enmity and an opposition with the real God and the Bible calls that disease sin. So the angels were praising and rejoicing. And basically imagine the angels are freaking out. They are freaking out because the cosmic, ineffable God, who they worship continually, who they worship continually, that God, mankind, has rejected, has just left his throne, has just left the presence and the continual worship of angels, and climbed into time and space to be amongst his enemies, you and I. The angels are going bonkers. So that shepherds and men and women would never again believe the lie that God does not like you or that God does not want you. This is the Christmas message that a Savior is born. There's this um, amazing little line from like an ancient Roman poet, and he's talking to authors and he's talking to writers. So if you're a writer or author, listen up. He says, if you are ever writing a story of any kind, He says, do not write God into that story unless, unless it's absolutely necessary. Unless it's absolutely necessary. What we celebrate at Christmas is the absolute necessary. Where the author and creator God writes himself into the story, him wanting no more of our worship, going to lesser worths, no more God said to to dispeace, And the angels are belting joy to this world so that peace has come to us, amongst us, and in our own hearts. And notice that peace. Just look again at these verses. Just notice that it's not unfounded optimism or wishful thinking like, well, I get a Cuisinart for Christmas, please. It's not anything like that. It says, and on earth, peace. Done. Period. It's a fact. It's a proclamation showing us that Jesus Christ is the only true source of peace and peace eternal, period. See, centuries before the very first Christmas, centuries, there was a prophecy given in the Old Testament to Isaiah. It reads like this, classic Christmas verse. For, uh, for, us, to, me, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, wait for it, Prince of Peace. All of this, all of him presented to the overlooked shepherds and to the overlooked in this room here and now. This message that the angels are delivering to the shepherds, to again, these habitual sinners, rocks them. It rocks these shepherds completely because what they're hearing is not a formula. What they're hearing isn't some religious law. 
meaning for it to say on earth peace among with those whom he is pleased only continues to reveal why shepherds and why God would do it this way. Between this peace, I mean, we have to understand this peace isn't like God peppering peace upon all the moral and the, and the religious. <laughs> you guys do so good. Peace between humanity and God is not because you or I activated it. And again, any unchristians here tonight, until the power of the Holy Spirit, until the power in the person of, of God in the person of the Holy Spirit reveals that to you, I can preach every moment from now until Christmas morning, and it would not mean anything to you. You see, until the Holy Spirit pricks your heart that you are not at peace with God, that you, like the shepherds, like myself, that we are in most desperate need of peace, of saving, until that day. The Christmas story, its gospel, will always just remain a detached, holiday, nostalgic, curiosity folklore. But when we see this God as needed over a God we want, then our answer lies in a manger, a savior, a prince of peace. See, then what happens is the gospel truth will do this. It'll convict you, it'll convert you, and then it will change you. And that's what it means to be a Christian. That's peace and peace everlasting. Do you guys remember our scripture from last week, Ezekiel 37? I just want to remind everybody. So what was said in Ezekiel. It says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. This is God talking. Shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. So imagine all of that in a song, in a moment, like a semi-truck crashes right into the shepherds. All of that. Then it ends. This big old Mack truck nails him and it ends. It stops. The verses literally say the angels just walked like back into heaven. It just stops. So then imagine this. The night sky goes black. The ears of the shepherd, the shepherds are ringing. Their eyes are watering. Their hands are shaking because it says they are filled with great fear and adrenaline. The sheep around them are like doing their sheep baas and coos and cries. (laughs) And they're just standing there. Have you ever been, like, been after a concert and the concert's over with and you're kind of just standing there? <laughs> right? And your ears are hurting? What do you do? What must be done? What can we do? How, how do we respond? What now? Well, for the shepherds, this was the ending of one world and the beginning of another. Look at verse 15. We're going to find out what these guys did. When the angels went away, from them into heaven. Later, the shepherds said to one another, let us go. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And when they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Okay, so for those of you who've had children and have been in a delivery room with children, the last thing, you ever want, and I'll tell you if you haven't had children yet, is visitors. 
When I was told my mother-in-law was coming, oh, dear God, really? Like when our kids were born, nah, no thank you. You do not want visitors unless it's the doctor saying you can go home or a parent or somebody has brought Burger King. Well, get in here, you. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, see, these shepherds are not demanded to go. This is their idea. Hey, Bill, let's go. But they make haste, not because they don't believe, but because they do believe, right? Like Puritan Thomas Watson, they are enraptured by by wonder. Look at this incredible quote. Behold, here a sacred riddle or paradox. God was manifest in the flesh. The man should be made in God's image. What? That's a wonder. But, 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 that God should be made in man's image is a greater wonder. Let us go see this greater wonder. And what's hilarious and what's wonderful is Mary and Joseph have no idea they're coming. Okay? So scratch that. The last thing you want in a hospital delivery room or... I was going to make a joke about home birth, but I'm not going to do it. Never mind. The last thing you want in a hospital delivery room, that's a bad idea, is visitors. But then if we scratch that, the last thing you want is visitors from strangers coming into the hospital room once a baby has been born. But remember, these strangers are not just strangers and visitors. They are shepherd strangers and visitors. Mary and Jojo know all about shepherds. They are defiled, dirty men who are now running into the delivery room and go, where's the baby? Where's the baby? Like raising Arizona styles. Anybody seen that? Nicolas Cage? For the shepherds and for all who hear the Christmas story, there's this urgent, immediate response. Because God's initiative is now transferred to mankind and the world will never be the same again. How could it? The shepherds must be thinking. How could the world ever be the same again? God has become a man. A, a hurricane has become a human. The angels' worshipful song has now become their own. Thus, the three reactions that are occurring before us with the shepherds is going and seeing and worshiping. See, what these shepherds show us, all of us, is that worship at its most basic primal level is responsive and reactive. There has to be a reason to worship. There has to be something or someone to worship. And I know that sounds like toddler theology, so let me try to make that point fuller. The instinct to worship is natural to every single one of us. Man, woman, Christian, not, whatever. It's true of all of us, the instinct to worship. But... The focus and formation of our worship must be taught. It must be learned, and it must be guided, and it must be guarded. Listen up, discipleship groups. That's your role with one another, to guard. We know we are truly worshiping when it's less about us, our wants, our experience, and spilling over more with the will of God or the majesty of God. You see, our worshipful response is one of unselfing. I don't know if that's a word, but I think it works. I think it sounds pretty. So it's, an, it's like the art of unselfing is worship. Not self-forgetting or self-loathing, but decreasing as he is increasing. See, we can learn so much from these shepherds about worship. You see, if you think about it, these shepherds don't have much to worship for. 
to worship this God for. They're lacking in reason, it would seem, to worship. Their lives leave much to be desired. Yet, yet they're modeling to worship and rejoice despite of what they might get. Is that not like a splinter in the finger of our culture? To worship despite of what we might get. Some of you might remember um, Michelangelo's marble statue of Moses. Has anybody seen it before? Um, Of course Kevin has. (laughs) But it's this beautiful marble figure. It's beautiful where Moses is super buff. He's really buff, and under his arms, he's got the Ten Commandments, and he's got like his massive Santa Claus beard. But you know what's really, really odd about that statue? Moses has horns. Moses has horns like like Hellboy. They're like protruding out of his head. The horns are due. See, why are horns? The horns are due because Michelangelo read a mistranslation of the Bible. The story of Exodus 34 explains when Moses worshipped the Lord on the mountain, the Bible says like his face shone, you know, with light. The skin of his face was bright and like a ray, you know, ray beam light thing. Well, the Hebrew word for ray or beam, like a light, was mistranslated into horns. So I say all of that because today we obviously no longer think that Moses had horns back then. We know it's a mistranslation, but a misunderstanding a misunderstanding of his mountaintop experience, his worshipful experience, still remains all too common with the church. Like horns to our worship. Too many, including myself, our reason to worship is the hopes of of receiving from our worship. Worship to get. Friends, that type of worship within the church, within Christianity, makes the incarnation, the cross, the resurrection of Jesus, not enough. When we start to worship to get, it makes all of these foundational gospel truths not enough. That's making a God we want. Yeah, God, you did this, but I need you know, more and more and more. That's Genesis 3 all over again. So like the shepherds, we are to worship responsively to what we already have been given, graciously and received in God through the incarnation and the life and work of Jesus. So if I can just, for a moment or two, if if I have your permission, address something insidious within the church and Christianity. That's a really heavy word. (laughs) Something dangerous within Christianity and the church. See, something has happened where we have started to believe that real, authentic, genuine worship is attained through external experiences. Meaning, many Christians have become, I I heard somebody say one time, worship junkies. We're worship junkies, trying to get our next fix. Going from church to church, looking for mountaintop experiences like Moses. Oh, it's better music there. Oh, I'm totally being fed there. Being fed with you? No. But there? Oh, yeah. (laughs) And like bloodhounds, hunting for where can we find the best worship to feel pumped, fed, fired up, straight shook, whatever it is that people are looking for. Listen, though, I'm not knocking other churches. I want to make that clear. I'm not knocking other churches. They got lights, camera, action, cool, whatever. 
The heartbreak that I'm talking about is not our gathering, but what Christians have come to expect every single Sunday. I need a face melter this week. Bring it, pastor. Melt my veins. (laughs) So you see, the angel sang this song once. The angel sang this song once. Moses had this experience once. You see, if you know the story of Moses, yes, he had a mountaintop experience. That's where we get the term. Like, yes, a mountaintop experience. Moses had it. A worshipful experience. Good for you, Moses. What the bloodhounds are chasing today, yes, totally. But what we find out later is Moses began to hide his face. Do you remember that? Moses began to hide his face behind a veil. Why? To hide the fact that the glory of God was fading away. See, whatever worshipful afterglow moment Moses had, it was temporary. Yes, glorious, but temporary, like all mountaintop experiences. If you've ever been to a Bible summer camp, we come down the best Christians of all time, right? Oh, man, Jesus. I don't don't remember. God wants something else for our worship or to ignite our worship. God wants something else. Listen to these words of Jesus who, when he was talking to another outcast, another forgotten member of society. Jesus says these words in John. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What we're reading tonight is a transformation, I believe, in the way God wants us to worship. Worship from ecstasies, no, worshiping from truth. That's what I believe the Lord wants. Look again at verse 17. We'll wrap it up with this. And when they, the shepherds, saw, they made known the saying that the Lord, excuse me, that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary storehouses these truths. She's emotionally intellectually, spiritually wrestling, trying to put these things together. And this is Mary marveling. This is Mary worshiping. Friends, this is Mary worshiping with assurance, assurance in spirit and in truth. See, so many go searching for mountaintop worshipful experiences like worship junkies, but what they lack in faith, they try to make up for with feelings. But Mary's worship is about what God has said and done, is promised and present. Is present. Like Jesus said to the woman, I who speak to you am he. I am here, Emmanuel, God with us. So if tonight you have forgotten about that insurance, that assurance, will you go ask for it? Is there enough faith to go ask for it, to seek that assurance that the shepherds sought to seek that assurance over your marriage, over your relationships, over your finances, over your fears, over your failures, over your life. See, there are men and women in this room tonight who want to pray for you. And like the shepherds with Mary in verse 17, they want to make known to you what had been told to them concerning this child. 
They're going to be on that back wall and that back wall. Go to them for anything. They're not going to interrogate you. They're just going to intercede for you. Will you respond? Will you go to them? Another way that we can respond, 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 respond tonight to unself is through communion. We love communion. We love communion. Communion has so much to do with with the Christmas message, so much, because it is God wrapping himself in flesh, in meat. So take the symbols of these very fleshly body, a a double stack cup. You take the symbols and we are to go to our seats or come here, we kneel on the carpet and we are to treasure them and storehouse them like Mary. And what I would encourage us is discover what these symbols mean for us today. To take communion, take the Eucharist and go, man, that was so great what Jesus did back then. No, yeah. But to not be able to investigate our own hearts with what these elements mean, what these fleshly elements represent today, then in a lot of ways, this is pointless. It's pointless. To take communion is to then go to our, where we're going to worship tonight and remember that that is a light into a very dark circumstances that Jesus has promised and present. And lastly, this is so beautiful, and I hope everybody hears this, I hope one of your favorite things when gathering, whatever church you've gathered at, is singing together. Just so you know, I love to, I know Pastor Lorenzo loves to hear one another sing because it's through our time together. Sundays is about worship gathering. It's not just through our presence. Cool, I was there. No, it's through our participation. See, namely, like the angels, we are to sing. Not to try to ascend to the heavens. No, 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 no. Not like Moses is trying to ascend to the heavens and worship. No, no, no. To remember, to store up with assurance that the Christmas mystery is God came down to us in flesh and blood. How does it say in verse 14? I love this. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace. Church, let's sing tonight. And it's through singing. I hope everybody gets this and I'll close with this. It's through singing that this This idea of a church being a family, being a body, unified, goes from ideology to realization. Tonight, the angels have already given the invitation to sing. Again, I I pose the question to you, will you join them? Let's pray.